Hi there. Thank you for listening to Spotless, breaking the boundaries of television. The world of TV and advertising is evolving quickly. The largest content creators, distributors, and brands are all vying for new ways to engage the next generation of viewers. Presented by two media powerhouses, Triple Lift and Advertising Week, Spotless brings you in-depth conversations with the leaders who are driving this evolution. Consumer behaviors of the next two years will decide the winners and losers of the next two decades. Now here's our host, Michael Shields, GM of Advanced Advertising at Triple Lift. My guest today is Sarah Stringer, SVP and Head of Innovation at Kerry USA. Sarah Stringer has come quite some way since she started out in London. Her first job in media involved booking ads for the UK's biggest funeral company. After making the move from funerals into the music industry, she spent five years in London and then moved to Melbourne, Australia. Sarah joined Cara Australia in 2011 as a strategist working with marquee brands such as Disney, Nintendo, Adidas, and Mattel, including launching movies The Avengers, Frozen, and Star Wars The Force Awakens. Recently acknowledged as a 2018 Adweek Young Influential and Internationalist Agency Innovator, and previously named a Formidable Femme in Campaign Asia's Women to Watch 2015. She became the youngest member of the agency's senior management team, founding the Innovation Department in Australia, where she focused on delivering technology and trend insights to agency teams and clients. Stringer joined the Kerry USA team in 2016. As SVP, Head of Innovation, Sarah leads the Kerry teams in being brave in their day-to-day work by embracing a test-and-learn framework to understand new ways to achieve business results for her clients. Sarah, thanks for taking the time to join us on Spotless. I'm excited to have you here. The world is a very different place from the last time that we sat. In fact, the last time that we sat in front of microphones together, we were in the same room. That was crazy. I mean, that was, I would say, probably about two weeks before proper lockdown happened because I was just running out to go to a client session uh, in Detroit. So I was running onto a plane. That's right. That was my last trip to New York. And now I'm in Los Angeles. So we're far apart now. Yeah. Um, So we're going to be talking a lot about the future of television, uh, the focus of this podcast, um, about innovation in advertising and the television industry in general. But also we'd be remiss to overlook the impact on the business world that the last six months of being under coronavirus has had. So we're going to be talking a lot about that as well. Right. Um, But I wonder if we might start with innovation. It's always a difficult thing to have words like strategy and innovation uh, in in your business title. Um, I wonder if you might comment on what it specifically means to Kara and your role in bringing innovation to the to the agency. Yeah, sure. Um, I come from a background that, I mean, it's pretty varied. As you mentioned, I started off as a uh, working on a funeral director client, which <laughs> not very many people get to say in the industry. Um, and then like moving on to, to entertainment. And I've done everything from, you know, insights work to planning to buying. And that really gave a really good foundation to then move into um, strategy work. And then what eventually has culminated in an innovation career. Um, innovation essentially means uh, trying to get clients to think about consumer trends that we're seeing in market 
and putting some money behind actually testing different ways that we connect with people as we start to see consumers move, um, usually at a faster pace than a lot of brands and the marketplace itself. So my role is really to help them identify those trends as to which we think there will be a business benefit for them taking advantage of that, and then helping them formulate a plan at how they put the right amount of investment into a test into market and deploy that and see how it goes. So brand clients are always trying to break through, whether it be during the current day environment, and it's the role of the agency in part to help them understand how they can reach specific consumers, but really how they can design breakthrough messaging as well. Um, We've seen brands try to articulate empathy with consumers around things like either having to stay at home and work from home, um, or more recently, reopening and and the, the notion of getting back out there. I wonder if you might comment on how you're talking to brands about breaking through in the current environment. Yeah, um, it's interesting because we, I mean, our positioning at Cara is um, designing for people and we've really taken a bit of a pivot from just looking at data to really understanding the context of human interaction and the things that freak people out and just kind of adding that extra sort of gut check on things because, you know, as much as we can say we're all in this together and I'm sure we all saw a range of YouTube supercuts that showed a million different commercials that all basically said the same thing over this time where they were like, we're all in this together. The world's a scary place right now. And, you know, seeing brands kind of trying to to make sure that people felt connected and, and bonded, but just remember, we're still here for you. Um, and I think that, you know, it's, it's been important for people to know that a brand has an opinion on, you know, what's happened with COVID, um, also what's happening with Black Lives Matter. But I think the most important thing is action. And I think the brands that we've really seen resonate during this time is because they've done something, they either had a history of helping out, you know, whether it be AB and Bev providing water when there's, you know, a hurricane or a tornado that happens, Um, seeing brands like LVMH starting to create hand sanitizer to, you know, ensure that they were helping with that supply. There's one thing to say that you're, to say that you're doing something and then it's actually something to be doing something about it and seeing the proof in the pudding. So we've really spoken to clients about making sure they're being authentic during this time and of what they're saying in market, it should be backed up by an action that they're doing. And really all you should be doing is telling people of the stuff you're actually doing. You shouldn't be saying you're doing it, but then have nothing to back it up with. That's spectacular advice. And I actually like hearkening back to and calling out the fact that, you know, advertising during crisis periods is something that comes along every now and then and brands need to be prepared for. Um, That's a great insight, Sarah. One of the things, of course, that they have to track to be able to deliver the message effectively is the shift in in consumer consumption patterns, right? Um, We're here recording a podcast, right, at a time uh, when people aren't commuting to work as much as they used to be. And I wonder if you might comment on some of that evolution and and specifically how the agency is looking at it and then advising your, your clients about it right? Um, Are we shifting towards streaming video versus audio? What is the importance of audio during this period? Yeah. I mean, we, when COVID first happened for obviously the entire marketplace, things changed daily and we pivoted very quickly to ensure that we were providing daily updates to our clients of things that were specific to their industry, as well as obviously things in general that were happening in the marketplace. 
We also started um, aggregating like different data sets where we could then start making predictions or assumptions where different like parts of our clients' businesses were going to be most affected. So we started using um, footfall data as a key indication to see, you know, where people were, what their habits were, were they actually, you know, using the stay-at-home orders, um, you know, and and even, you know, for instance, you know, grocery has grown at, at an incredible rate during this time because, you know, people rushing out to buy toilet paper and what what have you. Um, but the fact is, is that we also just started looking at other data habits that have, that have been taking place at the time. So as you mentioned, um, streaming video. So we as in industry have been talking about how linear TV has been struggling and it has been continued to struggle. However, during this time, we've actually seen linear TV have an artificial boost again as more people are, are spending time at home. We've also seen, you know, we were seeing that pivot to connected um, TV. We've actually seen in terms of increase in consumption hours is roughly about 30% higher in consumption hours um, in, if you count March, April and May which is crazy. And, you know, people are at home that they're, they're looking for that entertainment solution. So, you know, even though there were areas where, you know, linear TV was pressured, such as sports, for instance, with sport being shut down, obviously that has left a, a vacant gap for a number of Americans um, and, you know, just people across the world. You know, we, we're really starting to see the fact that, you know, there were some really interesting new tweaks and ways that brands could actually leverage their media dollars in a, in a new and interesting and, and effective way. Audio is an interesting one because um, lots of people obviously listen to podcasting. We've seen a, a you know really impressive increase in you know and this renaissance of audio that everyone was talking about, which is obviously you know very happily paired with the commute. And so what we've seen is that you know we actually saw um, listenership drop a little bit at the very beginning as people were just spending a lot more time in long form environments um, and using obviously they were they were at home so they could watch their TV. Um, we are starting to see that pivot slightly and, you know, people are leaning back into that sort of at-home connected smart speaker environment and, you know, they're listening to different types of um, entertainment choices now. So we are starting to see that flatten out. And obviously we are starting to see people now, you know, going out for their daily walks and they're still looking for that companion media. So I think as we start to see people being a little less paranoid, um, we're starting to see some of those, you know, pre-COVID um, media habits start to start to come back. This shift in trends is really interesting to me. We hear a lot of dialogue utilizing terms like the new normal, mm -hmm. per se. Um, you just referred to a dip in audio consumption, but then a return to mm -hmm. perhaps new behaviors. And I wonder, um, when we look at things like increased reliance on e-commerce, right? Increased reliance on companies like Amazon, right? We see companies like Diageo with liquor sales going up tremendously, right? But their supply chain has fundamentally changed and, and therefore how they think about marketing to the consumer is likely to change, right? Maybe reaching them through services like a Drizzly, right? Or a minibar. Um, and I wonder if you might comment looking across the broad trends, the insights that you've given to your client base, like what is going to stick around? What is going to really influence that, what the new normal looks like? Yeah, we're, we're looking at sort of a hybrid, I think, of the, the trends that we used to see in market and then the things that people have now got used to. Um, so for instance, something I'm very passionate about and I'm passionate about the growth of is gaming. And we've seen gaming numbers increase dramatically during this time. Like there were already, you know, staggering year on year growth 
and interest around gaming. And that has only, you know, just grown at such a ridiculous rate during this time as more people are looking for different forms of entertainment. And, you know, when people can go out and socialize a bit more and they may, you know, be able to go to a sporting event or maybe an entertainment venue again, we're still going to see that, that, that physical experience dramatically shift. And if we don't, I think it would be probably quite concerning. I think, you know, we will see, you know, less people in attendance. We will hopefully see more social distancing measures as part of that, um, which means even the actual, we're going to need to recraft what the actual physical experience of something looks like, because the reason people like it is a sense of togetherness, but it's also weird being together with someone if that togetherness makes you feel a bit paranoid about getting sick. But also if that togetherness means that you have to stay six foot away from someone, you know, it's, it's, we're going to have to work out how we make those physical experiences, something that people really enjoy and they're not going to feel weird about attending. That said, I think what we've seen such dramatic shift in live streaming as well. And, you know, even what we're seeing around schools and education and conferences and, you know, the democratization of that, because arguably anyone can log in now across the world and gain access to things that previously, you know, there was a huge barrier to entry, including travel and a huge ticket price. So I imagine what we'll start to see, and we've even seen this at CARA, we've seen higher attendance on some of our thought leadership sessions now that we're doing them virtually because more people can log in across different offices at the same time. And actually we will run a live session, we record it, and then people can also watch it at their own leisure. And, you know, it seems silly that that would be the case, but people are seeking that human interaction in a different way. And we're seeing some of these habits around, you know, do I physically need to be in the room with you to have a productive meeting? Probably not now. And I just think even the broader sense of, you know, do you even now need to live in the same city as the place you are employed by? So we're seeing dramatic shifts. And I think that even though we will see people yearning for things like, you know, people are very excited about sport coming back. I do think some of these things are here to stay. And I think we haven't even necessarily like this is the very tip of the iceberg as to what those new hybrid models look like. Because we focus on television on this podcast, and indeed the last two panels that we've been on have focused on the the streaming wars, right? This was a big topic before we Mm -hmm. went into COVID. Obviously, some of those new services, including Quibi and HBO Max and Peacock, have all launched during this time, which is a very special business challenge for them. But I wonder how you might comment on the analysis that you had on winners and losers in the streaming wars before this environment, and now how you really look out the next couple of years and what you think some of the challenges are to those services. Who do you think the winners and losers are going to be, right? Are we going to select more services because of a change in consumer behavior now? Prior to this, I was obviously just, you know, having a think about all the different services that have launched and, you know, what they contribute to the marketplace and why you would have them. Because, The idea of having so many subscription models is, you know, it's a significant investment for people. And I think, um, you know, Disney Plus has done incredibly well, good for them. Um, But, you know, it's such a, it's such a big mainstay. They have such a broad range of different pillars, um, you know, content pillars to go in on. And I think having those exclusives such as the Mandalorian, but knowing that you have a full back catalog of say Marvel content, you know, really adds value to people. I think I'm interested to see how Peacock's going to do because I think, you know, NBC launching Peacock during this time, 
knowing that a lot of um, Netflix traffic doesn't necessarily come from new shows, but actually comes from people binging old favorites. And the fact that NBC can kind of gather up all those old favorites for that, you know, that sort of like evening, I'm just going to put on a slipper and, you know, crush a couple of hours of The Office. People love that. There's a sense of something we've actually talked about, a key trend during COVID has been nostalgia. People have kind of harked back to something that makes them feel comfortable. Even if, you, if you're feeling anxious, watching something you've actually watched before, knowing where the storyline's going and kind of reliving the best bits as well is something that makes people feel good. So I think that Peacock is going to do pretty well in terms of people wanting to revisit, you know, those comfortable shows that they've known. And I think, you know, it'll be the balance for them to make sure that then once people are kind of, they have that always on bonfire of the old content, how do you then make sure that you're exciting people with those new launches? I think Quibi and Apple have had some issues because they don't have that back catalogue of, of content to act as a, as a constant draw card. I, for instance, was very interested in the morning show and I, and I used, you know, Apple, my Apple subscription because I really enjoyed that show. But since then I haven't necessarily revisited that. And I actually think that was the same issue that Quibi had. They had so many new shows to discover. It felt like a lot of effort to have to go in and, and constantly work out if you'd wanted, if you were going to like something or not. Whereas I think the power that you've had on, you know, platforms such as Hulu and Netflix um, and Peacock, for instance, is this mixture of discovering something new, as well as having that back catalogue that you're like, oh, I can't really find anything that I really want. Therefore, I'm just going to crush a couple of my favourite episodes from a TV show that I really like. So I think it's it's interesting. I think the the bundling of particular, you know, I do think there will be some sort of like frenemy situation where as we've seen with Spotify and Hulu where you know you get a subscription for this and you get kind of like a money off a subscription for this I think we're going to see more of that as more people start to question and kind of feel a bit angry about how many subscription models they need to round out all of the content they want I think the last thing that's interesting for me is what HBO Max is doing because HBO Max um, is obviously very premium content. You know, HBO's always been, um, you know, a, a brand that you can trust for that really high quality um, content. And I think it's interesting they're now going to start offering or they're at least exploring what an ad-supported version of HBO Max looks like. Because that, as an advertiser, is interesting for an area where previously we wouldn't necessarily have gained access to that type of premium environment. We will be able to potentially moving forward. So I think that's exciting. And then the last point I think is around the advertising model itself and how we're seeing that change. And I think, you know, Hulu coming out saying that 50% of their um, ad supported revenue is likely to come from non-traditional ad formats is something that excites me very much as an advertiser, because we have, we have somehow decided that relying on the old formats of TV and interruptive media is okay for these new forms of media. And I think that as an, as an agency, but also as an industry, we should be challenging that to actually make advertising more enjoyable and additive to the experience. So, you know, this is why we're excited about working with partners like Triple Lift, because we think the technology to actually be able to, you know, provide brand context and a context or an alignment with a character is much more interesting than just putting a pre-roll in front of a piece of content we know you want to see. 
So one of the ways in which brands are helping that advertising model evolve is by becoming content creators themselves. So I wonder if we might talk a little bit about branded content. Obviously, Kara Dentsu as a whole has been kind of at the forefront with the creation of Story Lab back in the day, right? To really bring that offering to advertising clients, to bring a branded con uh, uh, content expertise into the marketplace. But historically, as you know better than anyone, there's been the difficulty of trying to motivate, right, the media buying side of the house together with the content production side of the house, even when you nail the message for a brand and create the right kinds of content, getting adequate distribution and reach is always a problem and it requires the kind of partnership within the agency. Um, I wonder if you might comment on how we marry media valuation with storytelling. We at Cara have... We've got some very talented people that work on our Cara content side of the business. And it's such a growing part of our business because we see such success coming out of it. And it's an area where our clients are really seeing the value of not just showing up in a traditional way, but showing up in a way that aligns their brand with the content that people really love. And our P&G team, for instance, um, and our GM team do incredible jobs about integrating the brands um, and aligning those brands with personalities and shows and trusted advisors and being able to provide that brand story, but in a way that, you know, in some cases is funny, um, in some cases is serious, in some cases is providing a health benefit and actually providing a, a recommendation for people. And I think this move to adding, adding value and something that is enjoyable or useful to people um, into editorial content um, from a brand is is definitely there's a huge a growth area for that um, for agencies and for for marketers. I think finding the right balance of how much you spend in the integration, making sure you're getting into a partnership or a show that is you know the right price point, for instance, like has the right type of people. Obviously, you know, on target reach is incredibly important. We do the same thing for influencer marketing, like just because someone feels right as an alignment with a partner. If you know that all the people watching that show or are sat within that, um, you know, in that fan group are not necessarily the people that you need to convert, the question then needs to arise, should you be there in the first place? So I think where we're seeing real value as a media agency is that everything that we do around content is always underpinned with a sense of who's the audience, where's the measurement coming from, and what's the business KPI around that. So making sure the amplification and the distribution is there um, around these different content partnerships and knowing that there's an organic reach with any type of partnership. And then what are we doing to ensure that our media plan then tops up on that organic reach of that partnership to make sure that we're really bolstering that. So in some ways, then it means that there's so much value for the content creator themselves and the, and the show partnership or, you know, whatever that might be, there's added value for them because we're helping extend their reach with their, you know, IP and their characters. But we're also then getting the value and that halo effect of feeling like it's an endorsement or, you know, something from that particular brand. So it's definitely a win-win. And we're definitely seeing more partnerships and platforms that understand that advertising isn't necessarily a hindrance, but actually can be a great vehicle for their own um, brands and, and IP to actually get additional scale. So we're really seeing this um, helpful relationship. It's, it's, 
it's not kind of viewed as as a as a vendor relationship anymore. It's very much viewed as a partnership. Are there new entrants throughout the value chain that groups like Kara Content are working with? Obviously, they've worked with both platform and network partners like a Hulu or a Viacom in the past. Um, and they have their own content creation capabilities within house. But one of the interesting things that I think is a, a really cool evolution in OTT in general is a lot of companies that have historically been aligned with branded content offerings. I think about digital media companies like a Tastemade or a Pop Sugar or Vice even, right? Now collaborating with brands on creating content for that space. Is that something that Kara Content is looking in at a different way now in terms of new value chain players to collaborate with? Yeah, we've actually done a lot of work with those partners. Um, and in some ways, I think, particularly when we were starting Cara content, they were actually some of the first areas we would go for that type of content. Um, we did a partnership years back with Motherboard for something that was actually kind of a, it was like a Reddit, um, I guess it was an urban myth on Reddit about actually sending certain candy if you were getting a computer part fixed. And if you basically put your broken computer part and then put, I mean, it was Swedish fish as a candy into the box as well. It would miraculously come back to you faster in <laughs> like really great condition. So we did a piece with motherboard to kind of look into this urban myth that had been widely discussed on, on Reddit. So it's those early partners have actually always been actually some of the easiest ways. I think that we, we kind of started to build out those relationships and as we start to see great success with that, we've seen more flexibility and creativity um, than we can approach those, I guess, more traditional broadcast partners than with similar opportunities or things that we've learned from that digital environment. And we then use that to scale it in a uh, more traditional TV environment. One of the difficulties that you allude to there, right, in bringing branded content onto traditional linear television has been the expense historically. Right. If you want to offer branded content in a traditional commercial pod and replace the value of that commercial pod, there's usually a pretty heavy media investment that comes alongside of it. And the production costs themselves can be prohibitive to even getting into the space. Um, I think my intuition is that there is a new analysis around ROI that's kind, kind of coming for branded content offerings, particularly when you have partners like Hulu signaling that 50% of their ad revenue are gonna come from these non-interruptive experiences. I wonder how you might take us through how you advise clients that are looking to get into branded content in a big way, and particularly those that may be looking for linear OTT distribution of that content that comes with the, the, the higher price tag. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a mixture of different ways that we would, we would look at measurement um, around particular segments. Um, there's, I mean, there's, everything from new studies that we're looking at now, such as eye tracking, where we're, you know, looking at those hotspots, we're understanding, you know, who was actually interested, you know, did it captivate someone's attention? And we're actually working um, with a range of different partners in building out an attention metric for us. So we're using these sort of neuro studies to now start looking at different ways that we can start measuring the impact of non-traditional non ad formats. I think there's also a range of different ways that we're, we're now looking at, you know, how do we, particularly for larger advertisers, you know, the use of ACR data and how we can use that to, to 
you know, link that with, you know, did it increase footfall into store? You know, did we actually see, um, you know, particular changes? You know, did this extend our natural reach on our TV campaigns that we weren't necessarily getting? So we're looking in in different ways at, at how we can um, like leverage measurement. Um, there's also just soft metrics as well for us around brand perception and signups, for instance. So, for instance, we um, we may have you know a particular health benefit um, brand and actually seeing the number of people that will sign up for say a two week challenge and actually using that as a as an immediate metric. And I think we've even started looking at different ways to measure success, even from some of the slightly smaller, nimbler players, such as podcasts, and putting promo codes on things. And, you know, it's kind of an old school TV metric, which has kind of been picked up by podcasting. And then it makes it feel a little less old school when you're like, oh, actually, you know, just put a promo code in it and then we can we can track it that way as well. So there's a range of different ways that, that we will um, look at measurement. And even just down to search metrics as well, you know, sales search metrics, like where are we actually seeing the interest around it? Because just reach now, reach is always going to be important, particularly when we talk about TV campaigns. The whole reason, you know, people still use TV because it's the, the fastest way to get scale. It still continues to be the fastest way to get scale. Um, but the different ways that we look at the impact of that. I think the, you know, the different types of metrics and technologies that we're using now is definitely evolving. So when you talk about the, the KPIs that are of interest to D2C brands, and historically, they have, you know, they have all the great first party data, um, they know who their consumers are, they know the platforms that they've traditionally used to reach them, right? But then they need to kind of grow their customer base, right? And reach new customers. They start to move a little bit up funnel right? Where some of the traditional brands you've been advising for some time um, really know how to use linear television for brand awareness, right? And I wonder within the agency world, is there starting to be a connection between, you know, how the kinds of insights you're able to, to gain with lower funnel focused advertisers, right? And traditional upper funnel focused advertisers. And specifically, what impact does that have on their thoughts on kind of media mix and if that's evolving. Yeah, we, it's funny you say that. So we've actually launched our own agency for this. Um, we have a, um, an agency, well, it's a program called Disrupt at Dentsu. And we work with a number of small D2C brands and we've unlocked relationships due to you know, our connections with a lot of our big global media partnerships, you know, through Facebook and Google and so forth, and obviously the, the staggering number of D 2 C clients that they have um, in their books. But then it gets to a stage where exactly as you mentioned, scale becomes an issue. They're like, we already got you know your first one hundred people, your first thousand people, and they're looking to keep growing. And it's ironic because I think as we see more big brands talk about in-housing because they think that agencies can't necessarily, you know, add additional value. What we are seeing now is actually a number of D2C brands coming to agencies looking for advice on how they scale and, you know, continue to build their brand and grow. So it's an interesting dynamic where we're, where we're now seeing a shift that hopefully um, we won't be viewed as a, you know, air quotes, traditional partner anymore, but actually will be seen as a growth partner for, for these new and, and up and coming players. Um, I, have a, I have a stat for you here, actually. Uh, the A-list said that 80% of consumer brands believe d 
D2C brands are impacting how they think about marketing. So we're seeing these trends around how people, you know, need to tie up their omni-channel ecosystem and, you know, make sure all those data points speak to each other. Much easier to do when you're a small brand, but now all they need to do is scale. It's very hard if you're a scaled brand then to try and go back and fix all the back of house. And now that's where we're seeing those different um, challenges lie where they now need to find out more about their customer. They need now need to learn how to tie together all of those data points so they can actually create these very personal and surprisingly brilliant brand experiences. Um, I think the other shift that we're seeing from impacted from D2C brands into larger brands is even just the, the cycle of creative and the messages you put out to market. A lot of traditional brands would have previously spent, you know, multiple, multiple million dollars on, you know, a huge TV shoot. And what you're seeing from these smaller players is, you know, they will be more iterative in their creative cycles. They are creating content that is going to maximize their return. So it's not just one huge message. What they're looking at is actually capturing maybe 20 different points of view of a particular topic or subject matter or product. And that could even scale up to 40 or 50 pieces of content that will scale in terms of length or you know, format and even the storyline around it. And then they will go out and test all of those in market and then optimize their creative campaign around that. You will very rarely hear someone say, I've got a 30 second and that's all I need to work with. So we're also seeing then this pivot of you know, these learnings that we're seeing around brands that are laser focused on that return and making sure that that creative element is working as hard for them as possible. And we're seeing larger brands now start to think about how they're tailoring all of their messaging for particular audiences and the different areas that they're obviously advertising in to make sure it's, it feels very authentic for that specific platform. So we've talked a lot about change today. Um, and obviously, the impact of the coronavirus has been significant. But also, since the last time we spoke, there has been a tremendous amount of social change in our country and around the world. As part of our commitment on this podcast that we'd like to make to raising awareness on issues of social justice, we will be asking guests to comment with their own views and experiences, their thoughts that they've had over the last few months points of inspiration that they've been able to find, both at, as representatives of their institutions, right, and as, a, as individuals. And I wonder if you might comment, tell us about like your personal experience. Uh, where were you during the time of the uh, protests earlier this year that stretched across the country? Have you looked at particular um, actions that have been taken by institutions, by brands, or by individuals throughout our industry that are particularly inspiring uh, and that offer us a, a, an opportunity to engage uh, audiences in a new way? It's been an incredible time and it's obviously been such a crazy year. You know, I've talked to a lot of people about the fact that I don't think that BLM would have had the impact it's had on such a broad range of people if it hadn't been for COVID and people taking the time out to reassess what's important, what's fair, what they care about. And I think before everyone was a little bit business as usual. And this has been something that has been such an ongoing focus for the black community and has been 
widely shrugged off by the white community because it hasn't necessarily been something that, you know, will be like, you know, as a white person, as a white British person, I think I recognize injustice, but I don't think I'd necessarily have acted or thought about it in the same way as I have since everything that has happened more, more recently with BLM. I was actually on Fire Island, believe it or not, when um, when the death of George Floyd happened um, and, you know, the initial like beginnings of, of the protests started. Um, I had decided to take some time away with my partner and um, two friends of ours, and we just decided we were going to create a household in Fire Island for a week and, and try and get a change of scenery because we live in a very small apartment in downtown Brooklyn with very little outdoor space, so just needed to sort of get away. And we were a 50-50% house. Um, we have uh, two um, people of colour and two white people, and we were all going through this experience and, and seeing what was happening. And it was weird because we weren't in the city, but even just talking about everyone's own personal experiences with police brutality and, you know, understanding some of the limitations in the education system and our own experiences, you know, just out in life. And my boyfriend isn't white. And even us doing the, there was a Instagram uh, sort of like, not like a test, like a quiz. And you had to like raise your hand if, if different things had happened to you around police brutality. And we kind of did it and recognizing his experience was so different from my own experience. And it's something that we had talked about beforehand, but it wasn't something that we had been regularly talking about, I think, as a group of friends or, you know, just even just, you know, as an everyday important point. And I think by the time we came back to the city, we can literally see the Barclays Centre from our apartment. So we went out and joined protests and, and you know, saw it happening. And it felt very, it felt nice to actually be physically doing something to try and help and contribute. And I think it's been really important to actually see how peaceful those protests have been. And I think a lot of what has been shown in the press has been trying to portray things as very negative. And all I've seen from my own personal experience, has been something that's been incredibly positive and people um, expressing themselves and the injustice and their want for things to get better for, for black people in particular, but for everyone. Like there needs to be equity. There can't just be the sense that it's business as usual. I think as businesses, it's been interesting to obviously see, you know, people posting up their black square and companies recognizing it, but I think we, that first week I got back to the city, so two weeks probably into after, like during protests, we had a town hall for the business and we heard from a lot of our colleagues from different offices around the country of their own experiences during this time and prior. And it was really eye-opening because I don't think we had spoken in such a human way at work for a very long time. It's definitely created a new sense of humanity in our day-to-day -day interactions with people. And I think it has also led to a new sense of self-awareness and empathy. And, you know, I would still say a guilt that, you know, I, for instance, wasn't recognizing probably the amount of pain that a lot of people were in on a daily basis because it wasn't being talked about. And I'm happy we're now at a stage that we're at least talking about it because it's not right and it needs to be discussed and it should be talked about continuously um, and, you know, we are trying to have those conversations in a continuous fashion. 
across the business and we're holding these town halls regularly, but also just putting the numbers up and being as a business and, you know, we're a media agency, we live and die by our numbers. So now the fact that we have numbers, we have, I think previously we'd always felt as a bit awkward to, you know, make sure people self-identified, but through self-identification, we're only going to be able to hold ourselves better accountable. So I think now as a business, we know that we're, as a community, we're all in it together and that things can't improve if we don't hold ourselves accountable. So I'm glad that as a business world, we're doing that now. And I just hope that people stand by it. Thank you for offering such personal and and, and candid thoughts on the, on the topic. It's great to hear that both Kara and the management team there are committing to making this a regular thing. I think that is one of the, the, the key things that we don't want to allow the dialogue to fade to the background and we want to keep it front and center um, as we will continue to do on this podcast. Sarah, we always enjoy uh, challenging our guests with predictions of the future. If we can prognosticate for a little. So first of all, one of the challenges has always been kind of the appropriate allocation between like digital and whatnot, right? And, and how we marry upper funnel and, and lower funnel uh, uh, metrics. Part of that requires the agencies to look more fluidly, right, at how those budgets are allocated. So five years out from now, what are the, the categories that we use to describe budget allocations? Are we talking video, digital, TV? I'm going to say video, audio, experience, acquisition. Video, audio, experience, yeah. acquisition. Yeah. Yes. And what do you think, let's say for a major client like PNG, what do you perceive the ad relative allocations will be or where they'll be spending? Let's not say you don't have to name the numbers, but let's say where are they spending more or less? I mean, I won't speak for any client in particular. I'll give okay. a broad sense of where I think the, the industry will go. I think as we see more things become programmatic, It'll be tough for us to, we'll talk about programmatically interchangeably with the environments that it'll be going into. So we'll talk about premium programmatic, and that will be what we would call video. And probably premium programmatic will also be audio. And then I think the content partnerships we'll be looking at will actually be branded content segment, or it will be a podcast live read. Or So what we're going to see is a mixture of very digitized, hyper-targeted campaigns. And then we're going to see the elevation of brands through content partnerships in various different um, platforms. Excellent. Thanks for that hot take, Sarah. (laughs) I also just want to say gaming. Gaming is going to be huge. Everyone should be building their experiences in a game engine. Get some 3D assets together, please. Sarah, we can't thank you enough for joining us on Spotless. It's always a pleasure uh, to sit down and talk with you and to hear your amazing insights about how the industry is evolving. So thank you again for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Spotless. Be sure to subscribe and come back soon for another conversation about the future of television. For more information, you can connect with us anytime at spotless at triplelift.com.